Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Priyananda. Talk 11 by Asha Praver, May 1st, 2012. Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Help us to attune our consciousness to your inward presence that we remain steadfast, ever true to your divine ideals. Guard us from delusion. Keep us close to thee. Om. Peace. Amen.
Could we start with the microphone and hand it to Adam? Adam, would you say, you don't have to say it in such extravagant terms, but could you just give us the concept of what you said before we started the class so that I can answer it? It'll all be on the recording. Sorry, (laughs) sure. Um, I was just saying that uh, in listening to the recording from last week, Uh um, the story that you told of, well, first of all, pointing out how long Reverend Bernard was on the path with Master, you know, Uh being over 20 years, and the fact that he fell out of tune, um, you know, soon, you know, relatively soon after Swami got there, um, and just the, um, you know, I was just kind of thinking about the, the implications of that and yeah. where to even put that and how to deal with that, and then, you know, just thinking about how glad I am to have an example like you and many others here that, mm-hmm. you know, keep things very fresh and alive, but sort of. Still, it was just an interesting. Oh, it's thing very to think sobering. About. It's exceedingly yeah. sobering. It was very sobering to me. Um, that's why I mentioned it. Um, I wanted to, you know, respond to Adam's comment, but I thought it was important enough to wait till everyone got here, and to also preserve it on a recording because I think what Adam's speaking about is one of the single most important issues on the path. Out of a thousand who seek, <clears throat> out of a thousand one seeks. Out of a thousand who seeks, one finds God. Jyotish said, for those of you who are mathematicians, that means one in a million. Master said our percentage is, I think he even said, much higher. How much higher, I don't know. But why don't they seek is one thing to ask. But why do so many who seek not arrive at the goal? And many times in the course of running these characteristics of Master, we've just talked about how many people couldn't, couldn't stay the course, one reason or another. So, um, oh, hello, Katyayani. Nice to see you. Hello, Ramani. I see you gave her your coat. Indians arriving here. We've had hot weather and weather until today. Poor Gayatri came to America. You know Gayatri from Pune. She was going to spend two weeks in Chicago, two years in Chicago. She had a heavy sweater. I handed her a ski jacket, which she wore virtually every day for two years in Chicago, and then brought it back to me. <laughs> I said, you have no idea. You know, it's like South Indians. Anyway, going on. Um, uh, we're talking about staying the course on the path. You, you mentioned that I'm enthusiastic about the spiritual path, and that's a good example. What I want you to appreciate is that that is not just good luck. That is a a conscious decision that I myself made early on and have stuck to as one of the most important things that you can possibly do is to, you know, attitude is everything on the spiritual path, right? Attitude is everything. Um, People think that, you know, good meditation is the most important or um, experience is the most important or, you know, developing certain spirit sensitivities It's not. Right attitude is the most important. Because if you have right attitude, you can get through everything. And if you don't have right attitude, even very small tests will sink you. And and Swamiji, in some context, I don't even know where I saw it, but he talked about what keeps people on the path and what makes them successful. I wish I could tell you where, if I could find the note, I'll bring it in, but I really don't know where I have it stashed. But one of them that I remembered was that you must understand that you have no alternative, that this is a life or death matter. 
And this is the question that everyone asks. Why do some people quit and why do some people stay? It's a life or death matter. Okay, if it's a life or death matter, you don't, you don't um, give traction to petty complaints. You don't let little things get you down. You know, if you're on a lifeboat, you're really not concerned about whether or not your purse matches your shoes. It just, like, doesn't make any difference. <laughs> it's, it's not the issue because it's a matter of survival and how to keep that clear in your mind. But one of the, you know, the worst things that can happen on the spiritual path is that you lose perspective and you begin to think, This isn't as much fun as it used to be. They're not being as nice as they used to be. My job isn't as interesting as it was before. I was more inspired when I first came. I used to enjoy this and now I don't enjoy it anymore. And you forget that you're in a lifeboat and you just don't worry about the small stuff and that appreciation is, you know, 99% remembering what's really going on, paying attention, and just keeping that positive attitude just not letting those things get you. And um, it works. Because you're, you're, you're cultivating a truth. It's not like you're cultivating something that is just a game that you're playing. You know, you're, you're really cultivating the truth. You're just consciously keeping it in front of you. And so every time your mind starts to want to pick apart the path you're on, then you immediately go back to all the things that are really good about it and you pay attention to those all the time. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and help me if, um, you know, I'm not thinking along the right lines, but when I do think about this, and it's not like I've had, you know, a lot of struggles or anything, I'm still in that enthusiastic phase, but... Um, Which will last the rest of your life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. So am I. I'm Thank still in the enthusiastic that. page, right. too, and I hope to die in the enthusiastic page. Okay. And God bless you for it. Uh-huh. Um, I'm I'm just thinking that, you know, along the lines of, first of all, on the basis of truth just is. Yeah. It doesn't need you to believe in it. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it just is. And so this being one, I, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, sort of one way of explaining that same universal truth, which, you know, recognizing the truth in all other religions, uh-huh. but recognizing that it's one and the same. And the reason that we don't all just get together is because, you know, to use one of my favorite analogies, if you're um, north of the equator, they tell you to go south. If you're south of the mm-hmm. equator, tell you to go north. You know, so you say two different things, but you're really trying to get to the same point. Right. So I, I think to myself, you know, this is the most cohesive answer to really all the big questions I've ever had and wondered, you right. know, as a child, why are we here? What's the point? What does life mean? All, all these things. And... I really sort of, you know, I come back to that phrase that, um, I forget who said it, but, you know, when, when a lot of Jesus' disciples were leaving him, right. and he turned to him and he said, how about you? Is it Peter? Mm-hmm. He said, how about you, Peter? He said, where else would I go? Right. And, and that, that, that's what I keep coming back yes, to. And, and that, you have it now spontaneously, and at other points in your life you might have to, you might have to remember it. You know, interesting, Master's uh, Advice for Marriage, Successful Marriage, which was, I, I believe it's in the SRF lessons or the Precepta lessons. One of the things he says is the couple should <clears throat> frequently relive the days of their courtship, which I thought was amusing, you know, when I first read it, having either being a, a, a monastic at the time or, or, or newly married. 
But I realize what you're reliving is the time when you were effortlessly enthusiastic. And so you remind yourselves about how you were effortlessly enthusiastic so you'll be inspired to be effortfully enthusiastic. <laughs> but I realize that the, it's, it's a, he, he's really giving advice for a love relationship. You know, at the beginning of the path, you're remembering, it's very clear to that you've been rescued. You've been, you know, lifted out of the stormy sea into the lifeboat. But after you make a long life in the lifeboat, you forget that you've been lifted out of the stormy sea and you begin to criticize the lifeboat. I think somebody can't get in for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great picture. Okay, and... uh, Okay, so what was... There was another point about that. Let me just find it for a minute. But, you know, there's, there's another factor, which being, as we're all in community together, which is a, another thing to remember. Um, it's very easy to, um, to become involved in other people's personalities in community because people still have personalities. And some of the personalities are just easier to take than others. It's just the way it goes. And some people, you know, are more on your wavelength than others. And some people just do things the way you like it and other people don't. And some people are competent and some people are not. I mean, these are just the facts of life. You can't um, sugarcoat it. This is going to happen. But, but when, and, and these are like clues. Whenever you find yourself kind of, not, not merely having occasional disagreements, but when you find yourself falling into a consistently critical attitude of the, of the people around you, you know, the, uh, becoming out of tune and going away does not happen like everything is great today and then tomorrow morning everything is wrong. It's, it's like the, they, you start developing a certain way of looking at things and it begins to happen to you over a long period of time. You look back and you watch what you're doing with your time and you're spending your time in ways that don't foster your enthusiasm. And again, these are like all things that are conscious decisions that you make as you go along the way. And certain, I mean, I've had periods, and uh, Chidambar mentioned, um, some of you have heard this, but I'll, I'll tell you, for those of you who haven't. When Swami Kriyananda first wrote the festival and created the, the, the way our, our, a more system to our Sunday services, prior to that it was pretty much you were scheduled for Sunday and you, you made it up from start to finish. You picked the readings, you picked the music, you just did whatever you wanted. And then he wrote, raise of the one light, rays of the same light. There's, there are two different books. And we used that for, for a number of years as our readings before he wrote the book we use now. And the readings varied from, you know, from like four to... Nothing was less than... The, the readings themselves took 15 minutes in the service. Um, and because we'd always had a policy of having everybody else read, it, it just was... It was a long time. And there was the Bible and the Gita, and it was a lot of reading. And, and oh, you said it. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> Not everyone read well, which you can get away with if it's just a couple of minutes, but it, when it was so long, it was a really tapasya. I can't believe it. We went on for years. I, 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 I just, oh, I could hardly stand it. I was just going absolutely berserk with it. And... Uh, I desperately wanted those readings to be shorter. I, and I, 
it just got to be this huge. This must have been when we first moved here because this whole scene took place in this house we were renting on Colorado Avenue. So that would have been the very first year that we were here, 25 years ago. And it just became such a thing with me. I just became fixated on this business about the readings. And there was some big, a bunch of people in our house with Swamiji. And there was some big scene. And finally, Swami just said to me, Asha, to everyone, it was like all the Ananda leaders, they would all meet at our house when Swami was there. Asha doesn't have to use the readings. That's not a precedent, but she doesn't have to use them. Like this. And he just said it to everyone. And it was exactly, you know, what I wanted. But I, I'm, no, I'm no dummy. It's like, that this, somehow this was not a victory. You know, that he was just going to carve a spot out for me. Because the argument was, the argument had been in the discussion, that if I was exempted, then, and various names were mentioned of other people who would then seize the opportunity and it would create a mess... Well, everybody else disliked them too, but I was the mouth, you know. (laughs) I was the one who was obsessed with it. It wasn't like, I don't know what people really felt, but for me it became an obsession. That's the only word I can say. You know, so that every Sunday service was a a grinding of the teeth kind of tapasya. It was a tough story. And um, so he gave me personal exemption that didn't apply to anyone else. So the question of precedent was not an issue. I alone was exempted. And so I thought, you know, this is like, I think he's communicating with me in his way, you know, going around. So I refused to accept that. That wasn't sufficient for me. But it was still totally unsettled. And I was in that kitchen of that house, and we had a garbage can that you stepped on like that, and the lid flipped up. And I had this extremely clear picture, just like this. If you continue in this attitude, you will leave the spiritual path. You know, this kind of of self-will against the flow of Swamiji and the community. This is the first step you take that causes you to leave the path. It was just, I mean, I'm sure it was true. You know, and, and I sort of, I had some garbage in my hand and I basically just threw my attitude into the garbage can and let the lid fall on top of it. I still didn't like the readings at all, but I, I think either before or after that, I said to Swami, I'm, it's fine, I'm just going to be fine. And after that, I thought, you know, it's like 10 minutes of your life. You're not going to die. Just sit here and listen to it. It's not so terrible. Sometimes people read well, and all the readings were good. I mean, it was like, get a grip, woman. It's just like this is so out of proportion compared to what I had. And then, this is the, Swami himself tells this story. Then he published the Rubaiyat, the commentary on the Rubaiyat, which was a huge thing because the Rubaiyat commentary was freed up in the middle of the lawsuit. And right in the middle of the lawsuit, he was able to edit and publish the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam before the Gita was. So when, you know, he had the Gita, the Bible, and the Rubaiyat were his commission from Master, the, the Rubaiyat became free first. So he wrote the Rubat, which is exquisitely beautiful. We were all so excited about it. I believe it was I, with motive, self-evident motive, suggested, why don't we use the Rubaiyat as our Sunday readings for a while? So we went through the whole Rubaiyat for one year, right, remember? And then, oh, it's been so wonderful, sir. We've just started. Let's do it another year. So we did it for the second year. And then we were coming around the second time, and we were going to have to go back to that book. And the way Swami always describes it is, I received a tear-stained fax from Asha. 
which he claims came through wet, <laughs> pleading with me not to have to go back to those readings. At which point he started writing what the book we use now, you know, admitting, which he knew, that they were too long and they needed to be shorter because he's no dummy. And, uh, and then he wrote them in, and he made ex- extravagant uh, c- complaints, comments is probably the word, all through that year about having to stay ahead of the readings and what a terrible pressure it was. But, you know, because of Asha, I just have to write, you know, I'm nearly on my deathbed, but I have to keep writing them, you know. <laughs> just one another. And, and, you know, and then secretly I got notes from everyone else. Thank you, thank you, thank you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but what was interesting, you see, is that I wasn't wrong, you know, from the, from the overall point of view. Um, in fact, the service was better when the readings were shorter. Swami himself knew that, but he was setting a direction. It wasn't sufficient to become obsessive and leave the path over. Because if it was wrong, it would work itself out. And, and so when I saw myself having boxed myself into this prideful position based on my righteous perception of a thousand things, that on a certain level, I, I want to say this in the right way, I had a right to that opinion. And that was sort of what Swami gave me when he gave me the right not to do it. You know, I was very experienced at what I was doing. I had a good feel for what I was doing. I wasn't just coming from nowhere and just talking from nothing. And I knew that. I, there was too much, way too much pride in that thought. Way, way too much pride in that thought. But even if you took the pride away, it was a fact. But still, you know, compared to the whole path. So for the rest of my life, I have to spend an extra 10 minutes every Sunday listening to somebody read a marvelous reading that I wish was shorter. Like compare that to getting out of the lifeboat and getting back into the sea. But you see how easy? And it was very interesting to watch my mind. You know, just suck itself into there. And, you know, pride played a part in it. A big part in it. I have a right to speak. I know I can do this. That's why Swami gave it to me. Well, Ash is a very good speaker. She doesn't have to use the readings, you know. It's like, wait a minute. You know, so, so it's, but it, it's, it's not a joke when you're in it. So just, you know, you, you write down certain principles in your mental notebook. One of them is, gosh, if I find myself suddenly thinking that somebody that has been a good friend to me for years and years suddenly maybe is a little stupider than I thought they were. You know, like, you know, in this particular case, I really know better. Well, gee, it certainly seems to me that so-and-so has got their ego involved in this one. Like, who's likelier? You know, just if, if conditions have suddenly shifted in such a way that they're all wrong and you're right, just doesn't make any difference what the issue is, chances are not good that it's true. Chances are really, really likely that you're the one who's off and that this is, this is how you can see it. And I mean, that's happened to me on quite a number of occasions because I'm very independent-minded. And I finally figured out, and this is the way I play it out, it really isn't a question of who's right or wrong. And, and this is not about just becoming a mindless minion, which everyone's so afraid of, you know, very little chance. But if you do find yourself really in a very small minority against people whose wisdom over years you have seen demonstrated, or even if they're not wise, if they're sincere, you know what, what I mean. If, you, if you're just too much in opposition to everyone, it, 
you may still be right, but it's not worth getting out of the lifeboat. And all of those things, you know. And then you become enthusiastic by just being enthusiastic, by just making sure that you always are. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very, very important question. Okay, fair enough. Any other thoughts or comments about that? Yes, Sarah? Okay. So I guess I forgot why did... uh what was his Bernard. name? Bernard. Bernard leave the path then, Well, basically. Swamiji said that he, remember he had a very weak body and Master, you know, had him doing very challenging things and as long as he was in tune, his body was strong and then somehow the thought grew in his mind that he needed, that he was weak, that he needed to be coddled and then Master started coddling him and then it was never quite enough and um, who knows? I don't think Swami, did he explain it more than that? I'm not quite sure. He said that Bernard was intellectual and had a certain amount of pride. And You know, the thing about it, oh, I know there was another point about this. Several times I've had the fun opportunity of, of interviewing children who, they're not children, adults who grew up and were born at Ananda. I remember when, um, you know, the first, uh, first adult person that I knew as a baby who had lived at Ananda, I had the opportunity to relate as peers, which because, of course, everybody ceases to be a child at a certain point becomes an adult. And I said, you know, forgive me, but you've always been to me, all of you have sort of been kind of like a Petri dish. You know, what was it like to grow up at Ananda? (laughs) Talk to me about it. And uh, it's been very interesting just to hear what it felt like and just different things that happened, what the whole world was like to them. But one question that was a really serious and interesting one is that, you know, a lot of the children that were born and raised at Ananda, they grew up with certain families, and then after 15 years or more, some of those families left. You know, there have been certain cycles of time in which um, it was interesting. Jyotish, that satsang that he gave on Saturday, talked about how Ananda, or was it maybe on Sunday, but Ananda reaches certain plateaus at different times. And everybody reviews it differently. I, I actually have tended to think of it in the reverse side. Ananda hits certain points of house cleaning on a regular basis. And it was about every five years or so. There was a fire in 76. There was when Swami uh, renounced sannyas and got married, you know, in the, in the uh, mid-80s. There was the SRF lawsuit in 1990. There was the Bertolucci lawsuit in 94. Um, they're just different. There's been other points, specific points when... Uh, there was the festival of light, you know, specific points when things happen where, where the vibration of Ananda intensifies or shifts and, and everybody who's trying to move in tune with that, if you're not solidly on the track, you begin to waffle, you know. So the SRF lawsuit and then the Bertolucci lawsuit, you know, which is really one lawsuit, but the cycle came in sequentially. First it was about master's legacy and then the second one was about the character of Swami Kriyananda and the nature of Ananda and so a lot of people who'd been around for a long time um, couldn't go through that and they went away on that one so anyway this a person who'd you know been born and raised um, was just saying it was very confusing to them because people who had been utterly dedicated then vaporized 
And, and so watching that as, an adult, as a child or an adolescent, you don't understand. And then trying to make your own relationship, um, a, a different kind of insecurity sets in because from the immature perspective, it just seems so random. How can I promise one thing when I thought these people promised? But I, I answered, and I still say it's true. I've never seen someone leave the path without a long um, run up to that. And, and there, there's always a long run up. And the run up is usually, almost always, increasing isolation and unwillingness to converse openly with people that you formerly trusted. And, and that's not always the case, but there, there's almost, there's always some cycle that begins in which attitude begins to slip in classic ways. You know, and then it suggested certain, there was a certain individual, you know, that basically they really should have gone and talked to certain people who could have helped them and they just never would. Because they didn't want to at that point. At that point you've lost the, you've lost the, the feeling of it. The other thing I've noticed is um, debts accumulate. And if you are, uh, if you think you can get away with certain things, I've watched people think they can get away with it. Now that's quite different than being helpless in the grip of. You can be helpless in the grip of X, Y, or Z, and it won't take you off the path. As long as you know this is really not part of my spiritual life, it's just part of my life. And, and you know, Master's just going to have to put up with me because I'm stuck here. That's quite different than thinking, oh, it's all right, I can handle this. Or they're kind of prudish about these things, but I have a broader attitude. And I'm not just talking about indulgences, but attitudes. You know, just a little tone of mockery, a little lack of respect a little willingness to say, well, Swami's wise in most areas, but really in this area, he just really doesn't know what he's doing. Or, you know, what difference does it make if I, you know, go out to nightclubs every once in a while? I mean, you know, I just like to see what's going on in the world. You know, just go. Don't say that you're going and it's fine. Just go. You know, it's, it's a, you see the difference? But I've watched people, what I call, play the edge. And sooner or later, it, the, the debt, whatever you would call it, it accumulates and it becomes monstrous because you haven't oriented yourself correctly to it from the start. Again, attitude is everything. And then gradually it just, nobody can play the edge like that. You just can't. It has to be resolved. You have to become pure in heart. It's okay not to be, but you must understand that eventually you have to be. And even if you're St. Augustine for your whole life, make me a saint, but not yet, that's okay. Because he knew where he was going, he knew where he was, and he recognized that eventually he would get there, but he's not there yet. And he didn't even want to be there yet. And that's all right. But saying, oh, well, I think I'll be a saint, you know, that it's just like, you know, these are modern times. We just, you know, a lot more can be integrated now than you really used to be able to be integrated and... You know, I mean, what's the harm in wanting to be rich and just having money for myself? Like, you know, what, what's wrong with that? That, you see it. Just listen. <laughs> it's subtle. But it's, it's no danger at all as long as you stay in touch and in tune and self-honest. Yeah, and you have to go. I mean, 
I had Swamiji pretty directly, but I mean, I had a lot of folks in my life, and I still do. When I find myself in opposition to people, even if I know I'm right, I'm wrong. Or it's not worth it to me, is the way I say it. Sometimes I say to people, oh yes, the test is much more subtle if you're right, isn't it? (laughs) If you're just wrong, it's easy to repudiate, but a lot of times you're right. And that's what's called true but irrelevant. (laughs) And and that, that way you just sit in it. Yes, I'm absolutely right. But in being right, I'm likely to lose everything. So I think I'll just drop this. You know, it, it's fact but not truth in that matter. I was, I was right about the service readings being too long, but I was totally wrong because of what it did to my consciousness. Consciousness is everything. I've seen Haridas, who's a great saint, and when he lived with us, I've, I've told this story, he worked with uh, Chidambar for a long time. Haridas had some very... Uh, I apologize to you, Haridas, if you ever hear this. But you, you taught me something. You taught me something very interesting. Haridas always understood that consciousness was everything. I tend to be rather project-oriented. He always understood that consciousness was everything. And every so often we'd be in a meeting. And what I, what I would observe, the way I saw it on the outside until I understood it, is that at some point Haridas would ha- hijack the meeting. And he would just hold the meeting for a while and just talk for a while. And then he would, after a while he would give it back to wherever it was going. And I realized he would hijack it when he felt the energy was off, either in the whole meeting or in himself. And he would feel consciousness going in a direction that he didn't think was wholesome, either in himself or in the meeting. I watched it happen both ways. And so he would just take over the meeting, and he would begin to talk more or less on subject, but he would just keep talking until the energy had been restored. And when he felt it was restored, he'd give the meeting back. (laughs) And from a, a, a linear point of view, it never made any sense. It was bizarre, but he had an unerring instinct for it. An unerring instinct. And he would just, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't hog it. He would just hold it until it was fixed, either in himself or in the room, and then he would let the meeting go on. It was very, very interesting because he always knew that consciousness was everything. And once consciousness was lost, it didn't make any difference if we were making good plans. We'd lost everything. You know? It's a very, very important lesson. That's why you think, you know, so I'm, so I'm right. I've lost my right consciousness, therefore I've lost everything. Pointless. Remember that story, in, it's in the path, where they, they were really working on a big deadline to build, I guess, Lake Shrine for the dedication, and some key person didn't show up to work? Master said, where were you? Sir, I meditated all day. Oh, why didn't you say so? <laughs> Just like, fine. <laughs> okay. Any other comments, or we'll go to number 22 as we wend our way through 32. Okay, number 22. This is a great one. The Master was a flawless mirror to the world. Thus alone, excuse me, thus alone could he bring out the best in people. To everyone he met, whether a disciple or chance acquaintance, he reflected back his or her own higher self. In fact, he actually appeared physically different depending on the consciousness of the person he was reflecting. There are two photographs that dramatically demonstrate this phenomenon. The first is one of Master with the famous opera singer and disciple, Amalita Galakuchi. Yogananda's face is transformed with a gentle feminine quality, and his physique seems delicate and frail 
like Madame Galacucci. In the second, Master stands, ne stands next to Señor Portes Gil, who was then president of Mexico. By contrast, Master's face appears like a mirror of Portes Gil, hearty, masculine, jovial visage, and his body looks stocky, sturdy, and full of energy. These two photos of Master seem hardly to be that of the same man. The change in facial expression, comportment, and energy is so dramatic. These photographs and the subtle, unannounced, and serviceful activities of Master's don't you love that phrase? Serviceful activity of masters demonstrate two things. First, Yogananda's complete lack of ego to allow him to reflect back to each individual his own inner divine self, unmarred on master's part by any egoic identification with or attachment to his own body. Second, Yogananda's unflagging commitment to spiritually help and act as a divine instrument for everyone he encountered. As Master said, everyone whose path has crossed mine in this lifetime has been for a specific purpose. That's just amazing, isn't it? You know, I, um, the, the corollary to this is an idea that I've been reflecting on. In the new path, which used to be the old path, but that book that's been out since the late 70s, Swamiji's autobiography, there's a really cl classic section, and now for the moment I can't remember whether it's the beginning or the end of the book, but he talks, oh, it's a, in the chapter about reincarnation, and he talks about this world being a house of mirrors, and the reason we don't get out of reincarnation any earlier is because we're, so fascinated by the reflections that we see and that for a long time the only time we ever consider our own part in it is just to adjust ourselves a little to improve the reflection. Not really to improve the source but we recognize that, you know, I can be more attractive, I can make more money, I can have a nicer home that will work on ourselves but it's for the sake of of what the world will give us still. It's not for the sake of who we are inside. And it's just too fascinating, is how he puts it. So that, and I've heard that image for all these years, and only recently did I finally just really get, I mean, I've read that passage literally dozens at least of times, what to speak of how many times I typed it when he was writing the book. But I never quite understood that until, until, just now, as I've been explaining it now, the, dip, the, the thing about how you only work on yourself for the sake of changing the image, I, that was the part that I never quite got. Because people do try to make their lives better, but there's a long time when the mindset is still about, I will do this because of how my external result will be. And it's a very different shift when you start doing it because you recognize that consciousness is all that matters. And it's not about what I can then get the, the mirror to look like. It's simply because that's what I'll be at that point. And how long it takes us to realize that all we're ever experiencing is our own consciousness because it's so interesting and active, that, quote, house of mirrors. 
And it, and it just reflects in so many fascinating ways. And we change our bodies and change our circumstances and all of these things. And then there's a whole new set of... So then you have master who's a flawless mirror. Instead of reflecting back to us the distortion on reality that the ego imposes, master just cuts through all of the distortion that we're normally looking at and he just gives us back exactly who we are in a divine sense. And it's just, it's just really a beautiful combination and you can see how when you're ready to see it, to suddenly look at master and see a flawless mirror, which is this is who I am when I'm free of all those uh, funhouse distorting images. This is what I really am. And, of course, for some people, that's not alluring. Or, or it's alluring for a split second. But, but the actual realization that I'm going to lose all those flashing images and the commitment to them and the possibilities of them and that the only image that's ever going to be given back to me is this one and all the implications of that. That's the, in, the, in the presence of the flawless mirror you figure, I just need to get away from the mirror <laughs> instead of just staying here and, and, you know, bringing my... What it really is is my restlessness and my sort of frantic energy, um, bring it to a focus, to use all that energy in stillness and surrender instead of all the ways we use it. Yes, If we put so much energy into, into that, that uh, Maya mirror, yeah, the Maya mirror, that's a good name um, for it. And then all of a sudden, you're presented by the guru's reflection of who you really are. Right. Um, it's a shock, because you've put so much energy into looking a certain way. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're shown you weren't fooling anybody, because huh. the guru was never fooled. Yeah. And you know, it's fun within Ananda. It happens many times. People will come here and people will ask the obvious question, thinking it's the right question. Well, how do you get ahead here? <laughs> you know, like, how do you, how, do you, how do you get to be a leader of this organization? I mean, that would be an admirable question in many situations. You know, it's, in fact, uh, yesterday, uh, uh, a junior high school boy who, goes to, who used to go to our school now goes to a public school is doing a report on world religion and he chose Ananda. He asked me, how do you, because it was one of the teacher assigned the questions, you know, you're supposed to go find the local church and ask, how do you get to be a leader in, in this church? Because, you know, most churches have a defined external path. Hmm, I had to think about that for a minute. And I answered by demonstrating the qualities that are valued within Ananda. And then he asked what they were. You know, kindness. Um, devotion to God, um, selfless service to others. You know, that's how you get ahead. And I listed a few others. Having a personal spiritual practice, putting the needs of others ahead of your own. That's how you get ahead in this organization. <laughs> Enthusiasm. Energy. I, just, I said energy. Because he was raised in our school, he said, good energy. I said, well... At least energy. <laughs> Willingness to take responsibilities. A few other things. But really, by demonstrating the virtues that are valued within it. That's how you, quote, get ahead here. And getting ahead is not a virtue that's particularly valued. 
as a byproduct of those other virtues, um, you know, it's highly desirable to take responsibility and be willing to put out energy. Those are qualities that are really valued, but not for the sake of the, the mirror. And, you know, for many of us, and it's true, the first time you look into Master's eyes, and we haven't had the experience of being with him physically, but, you know, he's in those eyes. And you do feel that. You feel loved. And you suddenly realize how long you've been looking for that. And that suddenly there it is right in front of you. And like many things that we seek, it's a little bit daunting when you suddenly have it. You don't quite know what to do with that. And it's hard to trust it. There must be a flaw here somewhere. So that's why we do it for the rest of our lives. Yes, Saikanesha. Did you have a question, Marilyn, first? Just let's, okay. No, you've got it in your hand. Okay. Um, if I, if I, if I um, am watching my breath, uh-huh. and that's what I'm doing, trying to do it with everything I'm doing, Right. And I feel safe or calm inside. Is that conscious? Is that the consciousness that? That's the first step. The first step. Because if you think of it in terms of, which is another image that Swamiji often uses, if you think of yourself as a, a bowl of water, with a flat surface on it, and then the full moon, mm-hmm. and we reflect the full moon. If the water is perfectly calm, then the reflections are the same. If the water is agitated, then the full moon is just the same, but the reflection that you are of that is agitated by your mental. So when you begin to calm your mind and calm your heart, then you become a a better reflection of what's there anyway. So I'm not in in as much delusion or something? Okay. I remember hearing you say, practice when it's easy. Yeah, easier. Easier, easier. Practice when it's easy, too, but also practice when it's it's easier, easier. which is relative. Okay, Okay. Uh thanks. Yeah, and if you practice when it's easier, then your habit is in place. This is what I was talking when at the beginning of this. If you allow yourself to just pick and complain and pick and complain and pick and complain all the time, you, all of your little habits, you just become your habit, and then when a really big test hits you, you're, you're already on unstable ground. That's why I was saying that people who have, after a long period of time of seeming commitment, suddenly, you know, just went somewhere else. And, you know, sometimes people should go. I, don't want, I want to be fair. But sometimes it was unfortunate. Or let's just say the fruit of that decision has not been inspiring. Um, the seeds were there. You, could, you watched it. You watched the, you know, the... Oscillation building when it didn't matter. And all, there's another thing your mind says, oh, I'm just letting off steam over here. That's the, other, that's the other rationalization people use. Well, I have to let off steam somewhere, so I'm just complaining over here. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. You have to push until it's green. It's green. Great. It's already green. Uh-huh. This is actually more of a comment than a question, actually. Uh, this point, I'm able to relate to this point so well because uh, uh, I have this huge posture of the last smile that uh-huh. I've been having for a really long time. And uh, there were times in grad school, not very long back, when I was really busy. I used to sleep for five hours in two days. There were a lot of assignments and stuff like that, and I never got to meditate. And I used to come back to the room, and I used to look at it, and I used to uh, feel sometimes, 
this is probably not the best photo of the master. I feel like his, he's not opening his eyes a lot. I feel uh -huh. like, uh -huh. I feel like he's looking a little old. Maybe there are better photos of him. I used to, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but then when, when I actually get into the routine, when, when I actually meditate and after a very long meditation, when I open my eyes one day and when I saw it, I felt like, no, I feel this is the best photo of the master with eyes so bright it's like it's looking into me it's it's <laughs> this, this is the best photo that I've ever seen it's, it's so beautiful it's I, I mean I, I I then it's when I read this it's so clear to me that it's it's just my own reflection that I'm oh, seeing oh that's perfect that's a great story <laughs> that's a really good story very very good you know um, there's also I love being 64 I had a great time I was talking to someone I've had a great time every decade of my life you know, it's been uh, it's, since I met Swami. Before that, it was okay, but it's been great ever since. Um, and it was great. It was really great just being new. First decade was heaven on earth. Um, but I love being old <laughs> because so many things have already happened. And when you and you know, and when uh, some big, disconcerting, terrible experience comes your way. You just say, oh, well, here's another big, disconcerting, terrible experience, and after a while, it'll be over. And, but when your first big, terrible, disconcerting experience comes, there's a certain newness to it that makes it seem more important than it seems by the time it's the 10th or the 12th or the 700th one. So it's very good to relive your courtship, <laughs> to, to remember your delusion and your revelation and the joy of, of getting out of it. So the next time that cycle starts, you won't think there's something special about it. You'll just realize that here we go again. And then even if you're in it, you're in it. You know, this is not a good period. I, I've told the story before about when, for a long time, Swami Kriyananda was the only Kriya Acharya in Ananda. And he was the only one who gave Kriya. It was many years before he authorized anyone else to give Kriya. For many reasons, not the least of which is he kept hoping to reconcile with SRF and he knew to actually start commissioning others to give Kriya was, you know, really a line in the sand. So when he, he gave Kriya, which was usually twice a year, you know, everybody in the community went. And our community was small. We all, the community was Ananda village. We all lived on that one piece of land. Everybody always knew where everybody was. It wasn't like the apartments here where you can have so many, or the congregation where everybody has these huge lives and they show a certain face here, but nobody knows where everybody is. Everybody knew where everybody was all the time. And so we had this Korean, this guy didn't show up. And so the next day Swamiji had me, you know, go find him, why wasn't he there? So I went and found him with this wonderful, he's a very honest man, he said, I didn't feel like bowing down to the gurus last night. That was his answer. I carried it back to Swami. I said, I can understand that. I know why you feel that way. <laughs> it was just, it was all the energy he gave it. <laughs> you know, it was just a straight up honest answer and that's fine. We can live with that. No self-justification. Self-justification is what sinks your boat. You know, delusion, wrong attitude, just acknowledged as such and laid out there. As I, I used to say, you know, if you're going to sin, sin enthusiastically in the middle of the road. You know, just like do it. Let everybody know. Just be there. Then all you only have one problem. <laughs> if you're off in secret, you have not only what the delusion that has captured you, but you have the shame and the fear of discovery and the complex is lack of self-acceptance and all the thousands of other things. Just look Master right in the eye and say, we're going to go off and do something we shouldn't do tonight, sir. Would you like to come? 
take him with you. And, and oddly, um, you know, Swami assures us, Master likes that. And, you, you know, the logical mind gets very confused. How could Master, let's use a nightclub, how could Master enjoy going to a nightclub? Why would he want to go to a nightclub? Because he likes the fact that you're not afraid of him. He likes the fact that you're not afraid of yourself. And, and to take Master with you is in itself an act of faith because it says that my real life is with Master and I know that he loves me and we can just go do this. It's an odd sort of thing, but you see it's critically important. It's so much more important than being nice. It's all about consciousness. All right, let's take a brief break and then we'll go on to 23. What chapter number is this chapter? It's 17, isn't it? 23, there, that's the problem. No, I've got it. But my, I have the Indian edition in my hands and it's, it, the print is smaller and the page numbers are different. Okay. So, we are in number 23. Ready? I love number 23. He was inwardly childlike. I myself had always thought that a sage must be solemn, smiling only in concession to the weaknesses of ordinary human beings. To correct this impression in me, he once bought a few toys. The episode occurred at his 29 Palms retreat. We were seated in the kitchen at the time. He asked that something be brought to him. Whatever it was came enclosed in a paper bag. The master asked someone to turn out the light. We heard a few chuckles from him, along with a little crinkling of paper. Suddenly, sparks began flying out the barrel of a toy revolver. The light came back on. Then the master looked at me. How do you like that, Walter? he asked. Walter was the name by which he always called me. It's fine, sir, I replied, still trying to get over my astonishment. Then gazing at me penetratingly, he spoke quoting the words of Jesus, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. He finished that charming lesson by firing from another toy pistol an object which rose in the air, then opened into a tiny parachute. This is my favorite line. We all watched solemnly as the parachute descended to the ground. (laughs) I love that. I never saw him play with those toys again. I suspect he'd bought them only for my sake. Can you just see standing there next to your guru watching this, (laughs) solemnly watching the spiritual (laughs) But there's so much in that, you know. And uh, how do you... This is where um, everything in the world is complex, but God is simple. And, and this, this balance point between um, the necessary sophistication to really be on the spiritual path and the necessary energy that you have to put out versus the um, ego's desire to look and be a certain way. Um, our friend Paula, who I've talked to about and wrote about in my book, The Woman Who Died of Cancer and Had Such an Extraordinary Death, such an extraordinary conscious, God-focused last last moment Um, she had a very childlike nature and just never took herself seriously was never a um, intellectually oriented sort of person she was an extremely bright person 
but she she was well that was a distinction I was wanting to make. She had wisdom. She didn't have intellectuality. She could if she had wanted to, but she you know just wasn't the kind of person who had a huge vocabulary and read lots and lots of books. Um, she she approached life differently, but she was absolutely wise, and she was often much wiser in in circumstances than I was, because in her the simplicity of her heart, she could just see things clearly. I. I've mentioned this story to some of you, but it's an important one in this context. Um, another friend of ours, a woman named um, Mary von Tobel, Swami called her Shraddha. There's another Shraddha now, but this was what we called the first Shraddha. Shraddha was a, um, she was a small woman. She had a very small frame and a very strong will, and she was, she was feisty. Swami used to call her my bantam rooster. That's what he called her. She was a very strong-willed person, and she got cancer in her, I think she was even only in her 30s. I don't think she was 40 when she died. She was one of the first among our family to get cancer and die. And she'd had a very tempestuous relationship with her father. His name was Jake. And uh, he didn't approve of her choices in life. And, and she was just a feisty, rebellious kind of girl. And, but when she got sick, her father was just devastated. And as she became more and more ill, he came and was there. I, he might have even moved into her house and you know, he'd lost his wife to cancer, too. It was a very hard thing for him. And I was with Shra, uh, Paula and uh, Susan Rinsler, Bhakti, we, her name is now, Bhakti and Paula and me, and we wanted to go see Shraddha. And so one of the other girls called up, and Jake answered the phone. And we said, Susan, I think, was on the phone, and said, you know, we want to come over and see uh, Mary, we called her, for his sake. She's really ill and she doesn't feel well. She, doesn't, she can't see anybody. And, you know, click, that was the end of it. So there we are. And we sort of talk it over with each other and we decide, hmm. You know, she decided, she ran away from that father. She didn't really want to live with him. She didn't really want him. It was a complicated relationship because she also loved him. And so she, you know, she didn't really want him to run her life. And if she were healthy enough, she wouldn't be allowing him to run her life now. So probably we shouldn't let his opinion be the deciding factor here. So we went over to her house anyway. So we knocked on the door, and we opened the door, and Jake answers the door. And thank God Paula was in the front, and I was in the back. Because my way of dealing it would have been to, you know, tell Jake we had a right to be there, and we were going to go in. And Paula's way, she just looked at Jake, because Paula wasn't intellectualizing it. She wasn't dividing it up. Who are you to keep us out? We're her friends. You know, all the different things we could have said. Because Paula had a childlike attitude and not a childish but childlike, childlike just embraces. You know, the little child doesn't know who's fat and who's ugly and who's rich and who's poor and who's black and who's white. The child just goes from thing to thing and just kind of takes it as it is. So Paula just looked right at Jake and she was perfectly conscious that he was being such an old curmudgeon because his daughter was dying. And so Jake immediately said, I told you not to come. Paula, simple answer, which she never varied from, delivered in this, these terms. Jake, we had to come. And Jake blustered and said a few things. And, you know, I've had a whole speech behind, but I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Paula says, Jake, we had to come. We did it three times. She did it three times. And Jake said, okay, I just don't stay very long. <laughs> and he just stepped aside. He would have loved to fight. 
If I had given him something to fight against, I mean, he might have punched me out. Paula, in her childlike wisdom, was able to just cut right through and see exactly what was really happening. This man was in misery, and he just wanted to be against somebody. You know, so we just walked in, of course, and had a wonderful visit with her. But I've never forgotten that. You know, I probably could have quoted out of more books than she could, maybe not. I don't know, it may have never come up between us. Maybe she could have quoted from all those books, I don't know. But she had that true childlike simplicity. And when she died, her last words were, God, Christ, Guru. And within minutes after that, she was gone. I mean, and she was dying of cancer. It was not, you know, it wasn't like she was real comfortable. But she just had that because she just knew. And so, you know, Master C. Swamiji, who, who naturally, because he has a brilliant intellect and an enormous destiny in, as, to be a genius in all the ways that he's been a genius, to write this among, you know, all these other books which are just so, uh, you know, take your breath away what's in these books. But Master knew none of it would be worthwhile if it if he didn't use all those gifts to take him back to that simplicity of heart. And, and so, so then Swami becomes for us, um, you know, the, the perfect um, saint for our times because he's got all of those elements in place. You know, this is, it's an interesting thought because um, I think of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and the Dalai Lama, who are two... Um, very well-known and highly respected spiritual people. And they, are very, they have been very, very popular in our culture. They have lots of celebrity endorsements, and that gets a lot of attention to them. But they're, they're perfectly in tune with, with the realities of our times, which is um, social conscious concern for the underprivileged. That was Mother Teresa. Everybody's a little, we're so greedy and so luxurious in our living and there's a, little, there's a lot of guilt about that. So Mother Teresa sort of goes and shows us, oh, we can give our lives to the underprivileged and that everybody wants somebody to be doing that. And the Dalai Lama is about politics and war and all of that and that's another huge issue. So those, those two souls were sent to this time and place because they embody... Um, the spiritual approach to things that people are in this present time concerned with. But Swami Kriyananda is the Dwapara Yuga version of spirituality because he's an artist, um, he's he's a multi-talented person, he's highly educated, he has a vast view of, you know, history and science and, and he expresses himself in ways that highly educated um, in, intelligent-minded people can embrace. You don't, you don't have to just become um, a wandering mendicant somewhere. You, know, you don't have to put aside all these realities. He travels the globe. He speaks many languages. His homes are attractive where he lives. You know, just like everything that is part of, of what spirituality in this day and age should look like is where he's going. He's the times are not, haven't quite noticed him. I, I mean, I, the way I, I think about this is that basically Ananda and Swami Kriyananda himself both, Ananda is only a small part of what 
Swamiji has done. And Ananda is how you live it. And Swamiji has defined literally every area of life from the self-realization point of view. And at the present moment, only a few people care. But at a certain time, and that, I mean, how far that, away that will be, I can't grasp that. I have no idea. When people care, it's all laid out in just the way the direction society is going. But none of that would be worth anything if he didn't have the right heart behind it. He could have done all of that just out of his intellect and it would flash in the pan and then die. But what really gives everything he's done so much power is because Master shot the little parachute in the air and, and told him, you know, this is who I really am. And, and the challenge of reconciling the power that Master had to be able to raise someone from the dead and not have his uh, divine simplicity uh, in any way corrupted by that. It's just astonishing to contemplate. And that, that's, you know, the, the spirit of Ananda to a very large extent is just that beautiful childlike simplicity. Jyotish and Devi were here recently, you know, yesterday or day before yesterday, whatever it was. And um, Jyotish has, has been appointed by Swamiji, to, you know, to, to take the role that Swamiji has always had. Devi works, they work together. They're a beautiful team. And they have many, many, you know, uh, outstanding virtues and talents that they bring to that job. But, but I've come to appreciate that above all things, they embody the ideal Ananda devotee. Because, and Swamiji himself has commented that one person has to be in charge. There has to be a spiritual director. Even though we're not actually um, centralized like that. You know, we, we do not have a pope. And we will never have a pope. He's been very careful to make sure that every Ananda entity is, is equal. All colonies are equal. He's made a real strong point of that because he doesn't want us to become a top-heavy bureaucracy. But nonetheless, the ideal devotee has to be personified. Otherwise, we might get confused as to what that devotee looks like. So what you see, among other things, and, you know, I was in the congregation when they were giving service, you see that, that childlike simplicity. Just that sweetness, that perfect willingness to defer to others, to compliment, to, you know, just to be humble. And where do we get it? He was inwardly childlike. And that's also the interesting phrase. He was inwardly childlike. It's just those words. What does that actually mean, to be inwardly childlike? He wasn't outwardly childlike. He was, you know, Swamiji talks in other places about his power and, you know, just the impact that he made and that he was always in charge of every situation and people on the street would stop and think, that's the most spiritual man I've ever seen. You know, we think of, I'm looking at Adam and I think about the five-year-olds in our school and they're, you know, they're adorable, but they're little tiny kids. You know, there was nothing about Yogananda that was like a little a kid in that sense. But the, but the uh, open, the way those little kids just have that look they have in their eyes of just delight and uh, just a willingness to just be there and love you and be interested in the next thing, inwardly childlike. Swamiji often says that, you know, it, to be dignified but childlike. 
It's a very interesting thing to contemplate. And Swami, Swami was naturally that way. In fact, Swamiji himself describes that one of the things that brought him to the spiritual path was that as he got into his teen years and his adolescence and into college, as he put it, the contrast between his experience of life then compared to the joy of his early childhood was just so, so stark and painful. You know, what had happened to all that joy of his childhood? So when he got to master, he had this overlay uh, of uh, intellectuality and, and over-seriousness, but the, the self underneath it, it had just been covered for a short time. So Master was just able to animate that out of him. And then, you know, then he had the perfect picture. Does that make sense? It's extremely important. It's an important balance point. So that's why we can be so innocent. We just have, we're so innocent in our enjoyment of things. And uh, this is a very, this is not an innocent age. And this is definitely not an age in which innocence is prized. I mean, it's just, it's embarrassing to see the way children are dressed. There used to be such a thing as, as children's clothes. You know, there's a, a picture of a, Swamiji, uh, for the, one of the movies that they're doing, they, they got all this archive footage, and you see him and his brothers when they were children, and they're wearing children's clothes. They're wearing little things with sailor suits. They're wearing little tie shoes. They're wearing little shorts with suspenders. They do not look like small adults. They look like children. And, and children used to wear children's clothes because there was a certain innocence to the way they dressed. And also... You know, you, there's no, you don't impose fashion on children. Fashion is not something you want children to be thinking about. You don't want them to be thinking about trends and how attractive I look. I mean, vanity is vanity, and even little children have it. But it's very different. Nowadays, not only is there fashion for children, not only are the fashions adult, um, but they're provocative, especially for little children. And it's just... Um, it's, it's like I mentioned last week when we were in, in, in Mazatlan and I saw one of the parents about to feed his child some meat and I wanted to rush over and stop him. No, no, don't do that. And I see these... these yeah, and then, I, you know, like part of me comes in and says, oh, yeah, let me just think about this from the outside for just a minute, see what this looks like. Um, but when I see parents dressing, especially young girls, in provocative ways... And when I see the young girls just embracing it, it's, it, it's so painful. And then I just, you know, the, the, but there's, an, there's no place to go with it. There's nothing you can do. And you have to um, choose your battles, is actually how I would put it. You know, if a person in my position rails against everything, no one will ever listen to me. <laughs> so you have to choose your battles. But, you know, I can certainly have an opinion. And, and, and it, it's it's a hopeless quest at this point. I mean, there's just so much, you know, water over the dam. We can't pull it back. But we should at least be childlike and modest and um, step out of all that worldliness that is so common. Anyway, we don't have to necessarily play with toy guns, but <laughs> we can think of it. Any comments or <clears throat> thoughts or questions? Anything else that we need to do? Yes, Alan has a comment. Uh, can you illuminate any of the, when 
um, Kriyananda moved back to America. He was a teenager, or right. like 13 or 14. 13. And then he had to go through school and high right. school. And didn't he find America very darkening compared to the childhood that he had um, and he, the schools that he went to? His, his summary of the summary of his life that I actually I spoke to him about this at one point I became curious I asked him I asked him several different questions in fact <laughs> we were talking about his life this was when he was in Los Angeles uh, last year the year before I started telling him things he looked at me and said I think you, you remember my life better than I do <laughs> he said well I have to explain it to people so I do have to think about it but this, the cycle of his life went like this and um, he was born with a very high state of consciousness. And he, 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 talks, he says these things in the path, but he says them in one sentence. He says he used to fall asleep at night that the, eye would, the light would appear at the spiritual eye and he would gaze at that light until it absorbed him. And he thought everyone went to sleep that way. He didn't know that that wasn't how people went to sleep. He talked about how the astral world as a child, you know, this world always seemed unreal to him compared to the inner world of colors and lights and he talks about putting a colored blanket over a table and just gazing into the lights now, of course children always do that but there's much more implied in what he's saying um, and then he lived in this very unusual setting in Taliajan where it was an Anglo-American um, colony of just really a, I asked him once how big was the group there it was just a handful of families you know 20-some people, and like less than 10 children. And, and in this isolated, they were this little Anglo-English, uh, Anglo-American enclave built next to an oil refinery in the middle of Romania in the 30s. I mean, this was a very isolated thing. You had to go back and forth by steamship. There were no telephones. And the family related to the world around, I, his family, I don't think they were that, they weren't that insular. But then his schooling was with private tutors. And they finally brought a teacher over. And there were like a half a dozen children with one teacher. So he was always free to just have his own consciousness and be educated in whatever way he wanted. He had wonderful parents and this very unusual setting with the the British-American influence, but in this very interesting and beautiful country. Um, You know, Austrian nurse, German nurse, you know, just lots of things happening. But when he began to get a little older, two things happened. Some other children came into Teliagin. And prior to then, he was the leader of the group. And so, so his consciousness defined everything they did. And then other children, one family, I don't know the exact details, but then somebody who was more worldly came in and began to sort of compete for the leadership and was less in tune with him. And he writes, just in a sentence, he would never compete to be the leader. I mean, just to skip ahead 50 years, that's why when you know, the character of Ananda was assaulted in court and Swami was accused of being this dictator who took advantage of all of us, it was so preposterous. The man had never asked anything of anybody, ever. He just lived his life, and if people wanted to walk behind him, that was our choice. And as a child, that was true. But when the children began to lose interest in his vision of things, um, he didn't compete. He just stepped back. But he said it began to enter his mind and he was getting old enough to notice that the world he lived in was not everybody's world. It was especially, he said, not his father's world. And he began to be insecure inside himself. You know, this was his sadhana. 
he began to feel a little awkward and feel that he maybe he needed to relate to that world a little more. And he was when he was about nine. That coincided with him becoming very ill. And when he became very ill, he had a very high fever and he was delirious in his fever. And he writes about that in the path. His father would read to him from Huck Finn and then he'd have nightmares about it at night. But he said that experience made him suspicious of any altered state of consciousness. And when he came out of that illness, not only did he then get sent away from home to France, to Switzerland, where he was then suddenly isolated from his family, but by that point he'd lost confidence in the world he'd always lived in because he was afraid from the fever and he'd noticed that everybody else was different than him and it hadn't crossed his mind before. So that was the beginning of the tough period that didn't really end until he came to Master. He had, as he writes in the path, a brief interlude in England for two years when he was at the Down School because he was British enough, the school was a fine school, he found kindred spirits, it was his own language, he was able to to manage there. But then the war came and then he came to America and as soon as he hit America, you know, even then... American teenage boys apparently were just god-awful. And, you know, the bravado of American boys, the, the sensuality, the worldliness, the swear words, the, uh, just everything about it. He was just stunned. He'd never lived in that world. In fact, when those kinds of kids would come to Teleogen, they would just bewilder him. When, the, when those kind of adults would come to Teleogen, they would bewilder him. That, you know, that egoic American... And so it just, as he describes, it just went from bad to worse, starting right then. And uh, it, it, he just had, there was no place to put himself. He just couldn't, belo- he didn't belong anywhere. Everything about him, one of the, I, I interviewed for my book one of his friends from that period of time. Now, of course, he felt, well, in, in those first years at Hackley and at Kent School, he was really... Um, a loser as far as everyone was concerned and as far as he was concerned. But he says he spent hours in the music room practicing the piano. He wrote poetry. He started writing a novel. So you have two realities going on, but from the external point of view and from his own feeling. But then he decided to play the game that one year in Scarsdale. And I talked to one of his friends, a family friend, a girl who'd even lived in their home for a while. What she said to me was, Uh, because he had an older brother, a younger brother, but um, he said with Bob, his younger brother, he said, you talk about sports and parties and who was going where. He said, with Don, which is what he was called, then you never talked about that sort of thing. (laughs) With Don, it was always philosophy and the meaning of life. And he said, Don just moved through that whole time. He said he was like a prince. You know, he just had a vibration that was just completely different than even his, his closest brother. He said his mother was like a queen and Don was the prince. And she even said the house they lived in was a little bit (laughs) castle-like. I mean, she admired him greatly, but she was very conscious of, you know, an indefinable quality that he always had during that time. Now, exactly what was your question? But but there was one more thing that I just wanted to say there, which is, I asked Swami an interesting question. I said, inasmuch as your consciousness... Because he, in a later place he remarked that when he came to Master, began to meditate, and then he stated and went into superconsciousness. This was on a, a talk. Swami never, very rarely, especially 
for many, many years, he would never make references to any of his own experiences. And in this talk, it was one talk, it was very interesting. It was like he accidentally got there. And then he found himself there and he had to get himself out again. But he said when he went into, he was trying to make a different point. When he was initiated, when he took Kriya, when he meditated and went into superconsciousness, he immediately remembered, he, he was immediately back where he had used to go when he was a child. And then the interesting statement was, and it was the same moment because in superconsciousness there's no time. And so when he went back into that state that he used to enter as a young child, it was not merely the same state, it was the same moment. Fascinating. And then in the talk he just scurried away from there and went somewhere else. So when I asked him that, I said, well, Swamiji, what did Master, what, did, what consciousness did you bring to Master and what consciousness did Master give you? Basically, have you evolved at all? You know, is there any evolution to your life or is it just who you've always been? And uh, I told him, I said, people have often asked me if you have changed since I first met you in 1969. Um, And my answer is that literally for me, from the first time I laid eyes on him until sitting there with him in his apartment in Los Angeles all these years later, he has always been exactly the same to me. But how he has changed is that he used to keep that deeply hidden and over the years he's he's made it more he's made it more obvious. He's been more willing to stand in that than he was at the beginning. I said and then he said, I think you can say that. <laughs> because because I have had to write about him and I will write more about him, he's allowed me to ask him questions to ver- so that I don't make mistakes. And the other book that I published, he read every word of it and only corrected one or two things. You know, so, so then, actually, interestingly, the next day he wrote up qualities I had before I mas- met Master, qualities I got from knowing Master. And, of course, the first one was much longer, but one of them he mentioned was a childlike. He became childlike from Master because that was something he didn't bring to Master. He'd lost that. Interesting, huh? Now, was that your question? <laughs> yes, that that's really uh-huh. helps inform me uh-huh. how, how he came to be, you know, how, what he came with, and so on. And the fact that um, he had the idea to form colonies well before he came to uh-huh. Yogananda. When he was 15, right. But then again, you know, incarnations, previous incarnations, yeah. uh, and co-incarnations, you know, Master and Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you have to think that that's a factor. That yeah, you have you know, to think from that's Romania a... to India to meet in Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> how I... did all that happen? Swamiji is really nice about telling us any of us can do what he's done, but hmm. <laughs> you know, I've written one book in my life, and it was a major achievement. He's written 140. Eventually, eventually, eventually. Why not now? Yeah, exactly. No, there's no doubt about it. And he's never, ever, ever, ever wanted personal adulation and he's done everything he can to keep it at bay. It's creeping in more now because he's at the end of his life and it doesn't matter. But he's done everything he could to keep it at bay. Absolutely. So, I mean, he said that. I wrote that too. I've always thought, he said, 
I've always thought that I could do more good for people as a simple, unaffected friend than in any other role. That was in the context of Master saying to him, this is all I published this, so uh, Master saying to him that he, would not, he wouldn't merely teach people, he would have spiritual responsibility for people. It's a very interesting statement, in Master's name. But that's, you know, that's a very, that's a very serious thing. And that was when I said back to him, you know, if you would just, this was in the early 70s, when every, everybody who could get a venue was the reincarnation of Lord Krishna and enlightened and, you know, it was just a, it was a scene. And I joked with him and said, and we had just been in uh, New York and we'd been visiting with a very popular teacher who had hundreds of people, you know, and we were going back to our tiny little ashram. And, uh, I said, sir, if you, you know, if you just declare yourself as somebody interesting, you know, we could really get the show on the road. <laughs> it was a joke, but, but, you know, it wasn't a joke. He answered seriously. And then another context, he said, the world doesn't need more gurus. What they need is examples of discipleship. And then even more profoundly, he said, you know, if energy at this, if at this early stage of Master's work, energy is deflected away from Master toward any specific disciple, he said, the dilution will begin now, and it will, you know, every everyone will lose. He said, we have a line of avatars founded by an avatar, and we need to keep the focus where the focus needs to be. You know, he gives he gives very subtle answers, and he's right. He's absolutely right. That doesn't in any way, the way I look at it, change our gratitude to him. And that's the point. Because if the gratitude is there, then everything else follows. Because if, you, you know, if, you, if you've learned to play the piano and somebody has taught you to play it, every time you touch the piano, you think with gratitude of the one who brought you to that. The other factor that I feel like in relating to him is he is a perfect disciple. And the degree to which we can attune our consciousness with his, we will become perfect disciples. Now define your life better than that. You know, it's just perfect. And that, that to me gives him a role that is appropriate, I feel, for us to have toward him and also a role that is appropriate for what he has declared. And it, I, it fulfills both sides of it, to, m- to my mind. To take him out of the equation, to my mind, we lose enormously, and it's a very ungrateful attitude. To put him too much into the equation dilutes what should not be diluted. And this is perfectly consistent with both his consciousness and his, his self-declared position. And to me, at least, it's always worked. It's worked really comfortably. And I've, obviously, I try to do my best to communicate it to others because I think we'll all grow from it. Is that enough? Okay, that's it for tonight. We're going to meet next week, and then the following week we take a, a holiday, and then we'll come back. We have just a couple of more classes, something like the month of May, and then we're finished with this chapter, and then we do something else. Okay, everyone, thank you.